Hello and welcome to Revolutionary Ideas, the monthly Marxist podcast from Socialist Alternative. With the chaos of COVID-19 sweeping the world, many workers and young people will be on the lookout for an alternative to the capitalist system. Big business's drive to end the lockdown and to force us back into work makes it obvious that the ruling class will always prioritise their profits over the health and safety of the rest of us. We in Socialist Alternative believe that it's only by a Marxist analysis of how society functions that we can understand why it is that this takes place. But decades of attempts to distort the ideas of Marx by both capitalism and Stalinism alike has left many people thinking, why should I become a Marxist? How is Marxism relevant to our lives in the 21st century and in the 2020s? Well, to answer those questions, I'm now going to pass over to Yara Cliff. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of Revolutionary Ideas, uh, the podcast from Socialist Alternative. And we're going to end this podcast talk about various questions that relate to Marxism and why you should also become a Marxist. So today we're joined with Claire Laker Mansfield, who is a member of Socialist Alternative and also on the political committee of our party. And we're going, going to talk about kind of introduction to Marxism. What is Marxism? What, what we believe in? And we hope you'll find it interesting. So Claire, I'm going to ask you a very big question uh, to start with. Uh, I hope you can answer it. So what is Marxism? Okay, thanks, Yara. And I agree with you. I think that is a very big question. And in a sense, it's that question which we'll be asking and answering throughout all of the podcast series that we're planning to produce. So I'm not going to be able to give the full answer in this short time I have now, but hopefully I'll be able to convey, I think, what we believe are some of the most important aspects of Marxism and whet your appetites to come back and listen for more. So Marx obviously was a very important figure in our history. And I think the most important idea that Marx had was that essentially the motive force in history, the thing that moves history forward is class struggle. And he in a sense believed that the working class of today had the potential to be the ruling class of tomorrow. And what he meant by that was not obviously that workers would become like the capitalists of today, like the rulers of today, but the workers had the potential power to be the governors of society and to democratically control all aspects of how society and our economy works. Um, one of the things that Marx spent most of his life doing, perhaps contrary to what people might think, was studying the capitalist system and really grappling with how that system works, how it operates, and what that means for everybody who lives under it. And he posed some big questions. One of the questions that he posed was, where does wealth actually come from? How is it created? And he answered that by looking at the way in which ordinary people, working class people, through their labour, through turning the world's natural resources into things which people can use, and under capitalism, into commodities which can be sold, they actually are the producers of wealth. So he argued that far from it being entrepreneurs, bankers, people with lots of money, 
who create wealth, which is the propaganda we're hit with on a daily basis in the right-wing press and from right-wing pro-capitalist politicians, that it's ordinary working-class people who are the producers of society's wealth. And that the contradiction at the heart of capitalism is that while production is to a large extent collaborative, because mass production requires thousands upon thousands of workers to be involved in the production process. No one worker going through the whole process of making a car, for example, you know, many workers along a production line doing specific jobs um, and putting together specific pieces, other workers doing the uh, job of distributing those um, goods and so on around the world, others working um, in shops and selling them, all of those things. So the process of production and distribution of goods, in a sense, is a huge cooperative effort by millions of ordinary people, of working class people. But the contradiction at the heart of capitalism is that while there is that collaboration going on amongst ordinary people, there is private ownership over the means of producing things. So private ownership over factories, over businesses and so on. And the way that capitalism works is that while workers are producing the wealth and producing the goods that are sold and so on, the people who own those means of production, factories, etc., are taking a cut from the wealth that those people have produced. So they don't pay in wages to workers the full value of what they've produced during their working days. And they take the, the extra and that that is what makes up profit. And of course, it means that while workers are collaborating and working together, capitalists are competing with one another to try and make more profit and are not cooperating on a grand scale. There's a chaotic market-based system, which often is incapable of providing the things that people really need in their lives. And working class people are forced to struggle in order to get the wages that they need in, to, to meet to meet their daily needs and so on. So he he argued that there was a, a an antagonism therefore between the interests of workers and the interests of those who own property, um, by which I mean own big factories and companies and so on, and that working class people through united struggle by joining together in trade unions and also in political organisations have the potential to fight for their own interests, for their own independent interests and to look towards a society in which those people at the top, the capitalist class, are no longer owning and privately owning all of these means of production that they're owned collectively by ordinary people. And in that way, you can plan an economy to meet the needs of everybody rather than what we have at the moment where we have, like I said, a chaotic market system where the one governing force, the one overwhelming driving force is the urge of these people at the top to make more and more money for themselves. The drive towards profit at the expense of human beings, at the expense of the planet. So I think that that's perhaps a summary of some of the key ideas, but of course there's much more to it to that. Than that and we'll get into that today yeah and i think in future i think what what you were saying here is kind of really amplified by this crisis that we're experiencing right now like we see yeah. that even like 
bosses that maybe used to say that we're all a family are now showing the real face in the face of this pandemic. And it's also on a systemic basis. But at the same time, even though all of those, the, the analysis is true, I think a lot of people on the left and generally are frustrated with the situation because it doesn't seem like it can ever change. Like, you know, we've just had an election a few months ago and the majority of people voted for Boris Johnson. So how can we say as Marxists that things change and that we can, uh, you know, overcome the ruling class? So do you think that change can take place? And if it does, do you think that things will actually ever properly change? Well, I think change absolutely can take place. And I think although all of us have perhaps been through a, a traumatic experience, those of us who are on the left and in the workers' movement, when it came to the recent general election and the unfortunate victory of the Tories, which I won't, I'm not going to go into now because there's not the time. But I think if you look at what's happened just in the months since the Tories were elected, where we've been plunged into this terrible crisis, a public health crisis, but also an economic crisis for capitalism because of the COVID-19 virus, but not just because of that, of course, also because of the underlying contradictions which were already there and which hadn't been resolved following on from the 2008 crisis. But we've been plunged into this crisis and I think that already, despite the appearance of strength that we had for this government, the weaknesses are being exposed and they're being exposed very rapidly on a daily basis to ordinary people. So again, one of the key sort of ideas that Marx had about how change happens, and there were lots of things uh, that I could say that relate to this and the point I made in the last um, answer about class struggle being the motor force in history is an important part of it, which I'm going to bring in in a second. But one of the ideas that he had was that people's consciousness, so the way that people view the world, their outlook, is ultimately determined by the conditions in which they exist. So he said famously, conditions determine consciousness. So what he was arguing that was really that capitalism itself is what teaches working class people to be angry about it, for example, that we, you know, as socialists, don't have necessarily the job of going around and telling people what's bad about the way society is now, that people's experiences within their workplaces, within their daily lives, um, mean that they already, at least uh, to some extent, understand the injustices of the current system. And especially when things take place like what we're experiencing now, periods of crisis, you can see ordinary people's understanding of the inequalities and the injustices of the capitalist system, but also their own potential to change things move on very rapidly. So, for example, right at this moment, I think one of the things that's really been brought home to millions of workers is just how important their role is in society. We have a Tory prime minister who's forced to come out on a Thursday night once a week to clap for low-paid NHS workers who over the last 10 years, the Tory government has been shafting in every possible way with pay cuts, with attacks on pensions, 
uh, with attacks on the very service which those workers are attempting to run through privatization through cuts and yet when it's come to this crisis it's not been bankers entrepreneurs it's not been richard branson it's not been alan sugar all of these big names who we all know who have been on the front lines dealing with the day-to-day struggles that everyone is facing just to survive um, this virus but also to, to to have food on the table for society to keep running it's health workers it's postal workers it's people who work in shops and in supermarkets and i think that that means that there's whole swathes of the population who will have gained in a sense a renewed confidence about what their role is in society and we think that the key to changing things is those people not just understanding that on an individual level but having collective organization and the collective organization of working class people is how things really get changed and if you look at history and when big leaps forwards have been made for the working class they've come at times when workers have been best organized so there's lots of talk at the moment because of VE day about the post-war period and the setting up of the NHS and so on, the gains that were made during the time of the post-war Labour government. And what was important about that time was that it was a time in which millions of working class people came back from fighting in the war and they came back not thinking things can go back to normal, but demanding a better future for themselves and for their families. And they were well organised. They had strong trade unions um, and a political party in Labour, which while never fully in the hands of workers, at least was forced to reflect on some level their interest and was responsive to some extent to the pressure of working class people was forced to act. So for us, it's all about the, the, the organisation of working class people, but central as well is having political ideas around which to organise. And that's really where we come in as an organisation, Socialist Alternative. And it's about what we're trying to do. Because if you look at history, there's been lots of big opportunities for very dramatic change to take place. There's been a century, really, the 20th century, which has been full of revolutionary opportunities of times when workers have been willing and ready to take power into their own hands and have even gone on to do so um, to an extent, in some cases, of their own accord. But what's often lacked uh, in those situations, with one key exception, which we're going to go on on to, I think, later in this discussion, has been a political organisation with a clear socialist programme which can point a way forward to taking power out of the hands of the capitalists and putting it into the hands of working class people. Um, And that's why we fight to build an organisation of socialists which understands the necessity for not just incremental change, which we fight for um, in any case, but which understands the need to fundamentally transform the way society is organised to put workers in control of it. Um, That's what we're trying to do. And I think... The thing is, a lot of people would hear that and think, well, socialism has already failed. You know, we, we've had kind of countries who have called themselves socialists. We've had 
you know, Soviet Russia, we've got China, North Korea, all of those countries, are they socialists? And like, does that, is that what we mean by the workers taking the power? Because uh, that's not necessarily what a lot of people would agree with. Yeah, well, that's a very important question. And, and that relates to what I was just saying about all of those revolutionary opportunities, because what there has been in many of those examples that you could give have been mass parties which call themselves socialist or communist, which have lots of working class members in many cases. Uh, but the leaderships of those parties have tended to, in many cases, be dominated by leaderships and people whose politics has been distorted by the ideas of Stalinism, Maoism and so on. And let me be clear, from, from our point of view, socialism is the most democratic form society can take. What it's all about from, from the point of view of genuine socialists is workers having democratic control over every aspect of the way societies run. Democratic control in their workplaces, democratic control in their local communities, democratic control which goes up and up from the bottom to the top um, with committees and so on, which are elected with officials who are subject to the right of recall um, and so on. And a democratic plan which is arrived at through a whole process of discussion at every level of society with you know ordinary people being involved as much as possible so that is what socialism is from our point of view if you look at what took place in the soviet union for example in the very initial phase that there was after the revolution there was the outline of that kind of society Soviets are essentially or were essentially councils of workers so they were democratic organs of the working class in which things were discussed in which things were debated um, ideas were uh, tested and so on and you know those formed the basis of the new society that people were trying to found following the Russian revolution it was uh, the slogan of the Bolshevik party was not all power to the Bolsheviks or all power to Lenin or anything like that. The slogan was all power to the Soviets, all power to the democratic organs of working class people. And that's the model which we stand for. What unfortunately took place in Russia because of the um, very, very specific circumstances in which the Russian revolution took place in a country which was economically extremely underdeveloped and backwards, you know, even by the standards of a hundred years ago, um, and also in isolation. So while there were revolutionary movements which grew up in the wake of the Russian Revolution all over Europe, particularly importantly in Germany, just a year later, those revolutions were not led by revolutionary leaders of the calibre, unfortunately, of the Bolsheviks, and um, they didn't have the same quality of revolutionary leadership for a number of different reasons in different places. And the, the result of that 
was that unfortunately workers were not able to take power in those examples. And that led uh, to the isolation of the uh, Russian Revolution. And in that situation of extreme um, economic backwardsness as a starting point, and in a situation where the fledgling workers' state was besieged by uh, all of the capitalist European countries, I think 40 countries in total were involved in some way in invading Russia following the revolution and supporting those who were trying to uh, remove and to go back towards a situation of capitalism and feudalism as existed before in Russia. And they were left isolated and in a situation of extreme scarcity and a key unfortunately a key um, reality is that when there's huge scarcity in society it's very very difficult in fact it's impossible to have a, a fully democratic situation because people are, are, are desperate for bread and so on and that becomes the dominant struggle within the whole of society and people start to try and take positions within political organizations simply to get ahead and and so on and a process of degeneration began to take place within the the bolshevik party the communist party as it then became at that time led by the figure of stalin which was you know able to take place only in that context and unfortunately uh, you know, the legacy of that is the very grotesque caricature of socialist ideas, which then went on to develop in the Soviet Union and also in the other uh, states in the Eastern Bloc, which were in that sphere. But also, unfortunately, the influence of that degeneration was not just limited to that one place because the Russian Communist Party was also the, the dominant um, force within the uh, Communist International. And those ideas and those distorted ideas had an influence um, in all sorts of other parts of the world and in all of, in all many other revolutionary struggles which took place. So you see some of those same features repeated in some of the other places where there were later on revolutions, many of which again had that potential to be genuine workers' revolutions to put the working class in power, but where the results of those revolutions have been deformed and we've seen rather than genuine socialism, which is democratic, um, these kind of caricatures of, of socialism where rather than workers themselves being in charge, what you have is a kind of bureaucratic clique at the top um, around the, the state and the, the regime who are in reality able to dominate and control everything and to enrich themselves to a large extent as a result of that, although, of course, you know, not in the same way as the capitalists do today. So, yeah, we think that that's really important. And I think that perhaps later on you're going to ask me about Trotskyism and what, where that comes in, um, because that's also you know, part of how we answer that. Yeah, and I think before we go into Trotskyism, I think I have a couple of questions um, from what you just said. So I think, first of all, 
I think you put a lot of emphasis on the revolution and where it is, how it goes, the circumstances. And I was wondering if we can, we can't just, you know, let this, the revolution go and just vote socialists in. We had, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was contending in the last election in America. There was a possibility, uh, it seemed, for a bit uh, with Bernie Sanders, who all self-professed socialists. Could we just have voted them in and had a socialist country or world and everything would be fine? Well, I think, first of all, um, we think that participating in elections is worthwhile doing and as socialists we have always said that it's correct for workers representatives to fight to win elections where there's a possibility of them doing so and where doing so can give them a platform and an opportunity to address wider sections of working class people with socialist and, and marxist ideas so we don't at all dismiss elections and we uh, went through a similar experience, I suppose, to many working class people during the last election that took place in Britain of campaigning and fighting for a Corbyn victory and being obviously disappointed by the fact that that wasn't what came to pass. But I'd say one difference between us and perhaps the some of the other forces who would have been involved in Corbyn's campaign is that we were always saying that Corbyn winning was not an end in and of itself because what we understood was that the kind of vicious campaign which had taken place against him both in the run-up to that election and really in the whole time since he was made Labour leader because of the fact that he was prepared to stand up for working-class people against the interests of the capitalists even in a quite mild way by you know, by our standards, because of the fact that he was prepared to do that, to say he was against austerity, against imperialist wars, those kinds of things. He was viciously attacked by uh, the ruling class, by the capitalist press, by the Blairites who were still remaining within Labour. And we understood that should Corbyn come to power, that campaign, as vicious as it, as it had been, as dreadful as it had been would actually pale in comparison with what he would face if he tried to implement pro-working class policies after being elected especially if he went further than his manifesto and outline and started to take to, to, to carry out policies which really threatened the wealth and the power of the ruling class and of the capitalist class and so what we were always saying was that while it was right to vote for Corbyn, it would never be enough just to put a cross in a box for someone like that, that only with a huge mass movement of ordinary people organised from below could it be possible for the campaign which would be raged against him and the sabotage that he would face, which would not just be in terms of propaganda and slander and so on in the press, which we saw, but would be direct economic sabotage. People, for example, taking their money out of the country, big business refusing to operate within the UK if they were threatened 
with nationalizations or so or, or, or policies like that or higher taxes all of those kinds of threats would take place and that in order to counter those it was necessary not just to have the right ideas but to be organized around them so for working class people to be prepared to take power into their own hands and for them to be mobilized around socialist ideas so we support um, people who are standing in elections who stand to fight for improvements for working class people we think that that's important but we also have to understand where power comes from in the society we live in and it doesn't just come from parliament that's a very important thing to understand the most powerful people in britain are not just boris johnson matt hancock you know the people you see on the television who are um in the cabinet but behind them you have uh, the people who have control over the wealth and the power in britain and who have control over the economy and you can't control what you don't own so we say that the kind of change that's necessary is not just the kind of change that you get through changing the personnel who are sat in parliament but needs to be much more fundamental than that it needs to be at the level of who owns and who controls workplaces who controls um, the economy and really the only way to achieve that kind of change is through the organization of mass struggle and political organization around revolutionary socialist ideas so um that would be i think how we would answer that yeah i think that those are really good points and i think you know without the revolution nothing would actually change the system itself and if the system is built on profit then the needs of working class people are never going to actually be met and i think if, if we're talking a little bit about nationalization i think a question that we get a lot is does that mean that we want the state even in its capitalist form to be so big and strong like why, why are we still calling for nationalizations when we have a person like boris johnson at the head of the country or you know the tories generally like why, why would we support giving them more power in the like in the form of nationalization well um one of the things about nationalization even under capitalism is that workers still have a certain degree more control over nationalized companies which are owned by the state than they do over ones which aren't because we still have the opportunity as limited as it is in many ways but we do have the opportunity to elect uh, our government every few years and the other key point about nationalization is for us that under capitalism if you have a company which is owned and run for profit then what you have in a very direct way is attempts to increase profit at the expense of the workers who are running that service at the expense of those who are using that service whatever it may be or um uh, or or you know that kind of thing and the other thing about us calling for nationalization at the moment is we're seeing capitalism fail in many instances so we've had just this week um or just in the last few weeks i should say 
the announcement of thousands upon thousands of job losses in the trans uh, in the transport industry and in aviation particularly because of the situation of the covid crisis well we would say rather than those workers being laid off those companies which have become incapable of keeping those workers on should be taken into public ownership and compensation should be paid to shareholders only on the basis of proven needs in order to save those jobs and to provide stability for those workers. But I would also say that for us, the kind of nationalisation which tends to take place under capitalism is not what we really want to see and it's not what we're really fighting for. We stand for nationalisation on the basis of socialism, which is the kind of nationalisation which puts workers in control, democratic control, um, over, um, you know, those kind of industries that they work in, but also more generally over society. And we would say that the problem that there's been previously in nationalised industries, which have not necessarily provided brilliant services for people or have not necessarily been great places for people to work, although perhaps a little bit better than when they've been privatised, generally quite a lot better, actually. But even then, certainly not what we would like to see. The problem with that has been is that these were companies which were taken into public ownership, but then run essentially in the model of a capitalist business with a few people at the top on an executive making all the big decisions and run not in the interests of society, but in the interests of maintaining and supporting the the capitalist system itself. And we're seeing a bit of that kind of nationalisation going on at the moment. So the Tories, despite having suggested that nationalising the railways was a crazy Marxist idea, have essentially been forced to do so during this crisis. They've taken the rail franchises back into public ownership. Um, they've done that to, to save these private companies which were about to go under and they're kind of underwriting the losses. The state is underwriting the losses that those companies are now facing, despite them having taken all those profits for years. But they're doing so with the express aim of handing them back to those private companies as soon as they possibly can. And in the meantime, the very same people who've been running our railways in a chaotic and shambolic way for many years with huge problems are also being left in charge of them. So the state is kind of nationalising the losses um, and the profits are remaining in private hands. So that isn't really what we mean when we call for nationalisation. We're fighting for um, socialist nationalisation on a democratic basis. That's, that's, I think, a really, really important point because I also think that, you know, in this crisis we've seen so much how managers aren't really necessary in most cases like they, they don't actually do the day-to-day -day job that gets the business running so if that's the case why are they getting more money in the first place but also why are they even there and like if if the workers could organize democratically to and be the owners of the the, the service or the factory or whatever it is then not only would it be a, a better company but uh, the, the people who are actually uh, doing the job and getting the profit and get making the uh, the product or providing the service will be the ones who are getting back from this company. 
And I think we talked a little bit about Stalinism and like kind of maybe the day after the revolution in a way. But I wanted to ask, why is Trotskyism different? Like, how would Trotskyism avoid the the degeneration that we talked about, and how is it different to Stalinism? Well, Trotsky, along with Lenin, was one of the leaders of the Russian Revolution. He played a central role in the bringing about of what um, was a kind of the first ever workers' state to exist in the world and the first time in history when workers were able to take power in a country. So Trotsky played an incredibly important role in the process of the Russian Revolution. And he was an important thinker before that and had some of the the key ideas which led to that being successful, which were ultimately um, agreed upon by Lenin and others within the Bolshevik party. Um, including ideas about how revolution would take place in countries like Russia, where capitalism hadn't been fully established and feudal relations still dominated in large parts of the country. But I think particularly important in the context of discussing Stalinism is the role that Trotsky played after the Russian Revolution in standing up to this degeneration and this grotesque degeneration that began to take place and which crystallised around the figure of Stalin. And supporters of Trotsky and Trotsky himself, because they were so steadfast in opposing and fighting against the degeneration that was taking place, fighting for the legacy of the Russian Revolution, for genuine democratic socialism, and also for internationalism, um, for an approach which was based on fighting to spread the revolution around the world so that Russia would not be so isolated and so on and so that you could build socialism which would be possible in Russia on the basis of an international um, confederation of, of different socialist countries and so on. So fighting for that vision um, and genuine Marxism because they were so steadfast in that they were persecuted and of course ultimately Trotsky was himself murdered by Stalin by, by a Stalinist agent and we you know stand in that tradition I think of Trotskyism which we would argue is really a continuation of genuine Marxism of the real ideas of Marx which are not reflected when you look at the kind of societies which those which were you know run by Stalinist regimes really became and Trotsky continued to fight for that throughout his life and built uh, you know socialist organizations around the world which were fighting to continue that legacy in the fourth international so we look to those traditions of internationalism of democratic socialism and those are the, the kinds of traditions that we're seeking to continue today. Um, and I think that there would be, you know, a huge amount more that could be said specifically about Trotsky's contributions to the understanding of Marxism. But perhaps those will have to be saved for future episodes of this podcast, because uh, I think that they probably take too, too much time to, to go into fully. 
Yeah, and I think Trotsky is definitely a big subject for us that we should definitely discuss more. Um, and I think also the, the point about internationalism is so important, I think, in the context of the last year where we saw, you know, amplified those problems of the working class that aren't just national or local. Uh, like we have had mass movements around the climate, for example. It doesn't, like, even if uh, we get socialism in one country, we won't be able to solve the issue of the climate for the working class because that one country still is in this world. <laughs> And it has to be a solution that is international. And I think that's not the only issue. It's just a very obvious one. And I think the last question that I want to ask that is maybe kind of twofold. So we talked a lot about coronavirus and we talked about the failures of capitalism to deal with this crisis and with previous crises and surely with the following crises, the ones you... Um, and I just wanted to know what you think a socialist world would look like? How would a socialist world deal with a crisis like the coronavirus crisis? But generally, what would our life be like in a socialist world? How would it be different to capitalism? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, I mean, in terms of coronavirus, I think we should start off by saying that the crisis itself, as in the spread of the virus from animals to humans, was probably linked to the way in which food production is organized under capitalism and also the impacts which capitalist production are having on our environment which are increasingly driving uh, animals wild animals into closer and closer contact with humans because of habitat destruction and so on and meanwhile you have huge amounts of of livestock um, wild animals being sold for food and, and so on so the fact the very fact that there is this coronavirus present within the human population in itself is likely linked to capitalist modes of production and so on but i'd also say that going beyond that the fact that the virus has been able to spread in the way that it has like wildfire all around the world in a situation where in the 21st century we have enough technological capacity to understand the virus to understand how it's spread to test for it to trace to isolate cases again is unfortunately testament to the failings of the capitalist system and the ways in which it's completely incapable of meeting basic human needs like those of health and so on but in terms of what we demand i suppose as socialists for how this crisis should now be overcome well we start off by saying that it's working class people who are the key to getting us out of this crisis we're seeing that just on the basic level of who is uh you know caring for sick and elderly people who are unfortunately succumbing to this virus we see that with who is continuing to maintain the running of society in terms of schools uh in terms of supermarkets shops etc so working class people are already playing the key role but what we would say is that they should also be the ones making the big decisions so just this week in britain we've had johnson essentially saying that thousands of low paid and manual workers millions in fact should be forced back to work when we know it isn't safe for them to do that well we would say it shouldn't be Johnson who's just making these decisions. 
workers need to take matters into their own hands. So workers should refuse to go back to work until it's safe and the unions should organise and fight for that to be the case. And we would also say that, you know, the huge resources that exist in society, they need to be uh, used in order to overcome the effects of this virus. So we have capitalist production, which is extremely wasteful, where huge amounts of money are spent on advertising and there's huge numbers of workers who spend their entire lives doing jobs which, frankly, are not very useful to society because they assist capitalists in making profits or they assist capitalists in making money. We would say that what's really necessary to, to completely overcome this virus would be for us to be able to reorganise production and society in order to produce the things which people need. So, for example, we know that there have been shortages of all kinds of things, personal protective equipment for hospital workers, um, ventilators, other forms of oxygen machines and so on. And, you know, not to mention the need to find as rapidly as possible a vaccine. And really to be able to do all of that and to do it efficiently, you need an economy which is not just based on the profit motive. You need one which can be planned and can be organised on a democratic basis to meet people's needs, whether or not doing so is uh, profitable. So we would say that the coronavirus crisis poses very sharply the need for socialist planning. And that's also related to what you were mentioning earlier, not specifically on this issue, but the climate crisis, where in order to change and transform our economy so that it's not based on fossil fuels and on things which you know pollute our world plastics etc you need not just to be doing so based on what's profitable but based on you know a democratic plan for society so we think that you know, this poses very sharply the need for that kind of democratic planning and it also reveals very dramatically who's really important in society and who has the potential to do that. So we think coronavirus is a crisis which poses the need for socialist change. And we're going to see, I think, in the wake of this crisis, potentially massive attacks on working class people, mass layoffs by companies who are facing uh, potentially going under, massive numbers of people facing unemployment, potentially having their wages cut and so on. And what we really need to do now is to organise to make sure that it's not workers who pay the price for this crisis. And that rather than this opening up the doors to you know, years of depression and, and terrible misery for working class people, that this can be a crisis which uh, is an opportunity for the workers' movement to reassert its power within society and to fight for a decent future for ordinary people that means taking up the call for socialist change wow that's a big call to action to everyone who's listening here uh, today and i think that's also a very important call to action uh, and obviously thank you so much claire i think this has been really really interesting and i'm sure everyone who's listening to it is gonna learn a lot and i want to just relate to the last points that you made there claire 
and ask everyone who's listening today to go on our website, socialistalternative.net, and click on the button that says get involved and send us your details so you can be part of our, of our organization that's trying to organize this fight back against exactly what we've talked about today, but specifically the last things that Claire said about how we are at kind of like the gate of a crisis that's already sort of started, but we are not at the ending stages of it at all. And this can be a real opportunity for working class people to take those ideas that we talked about today, to take those ideas that Marx came up with and Trotsky uh, came up with and kind of bring them to reality. So thank you so much, Claire. Uh, I hope oh, thanks to, for having me. <laughs> yeah, I hope to hear from you soon at maybe uh, next episode uh, that we're going to have. And uh, hope to see everyone uh, who's been listening again for our next episode. Thanks so much. Okay, I'd like to thank both Yara and Claire for providing that very, very interesting and relevant discussion on the need for Marxist ideas uh, to guide our activities as uh, workers and socialists. If you like what you've heard in this episode, please do not hesitate to get in touch. To learn more about us, to get a copy of the digital issue 7 of our monthly newspaper, please go to socialistalternative.net to read more about what we stand for. Like and follow our Facebook and Instagram pages. Facebook is Socialist Alternative ISA England, Wales and Scotland and Instagram is Socialist Alternative EWS. Lastly, I'll say, please make sure to share this episode, share on social media, share to your workmates, friends, family, everybody you know, uh, to spread word of socialism. We look forward to you tuning in next time. Thank you.